Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hi, and welcome to another session on the Prison Mindfulness Summit. My name is John McAdams, and I'll be your co-host this session. I'm honored to be here today with Matthew Hahn. Welcome, Matthew. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being part of our summit. I've been looking forward to this conversation. We had a little bit of chat before we started rolling. I'm really excited to kind of get into the meat of this. Uh, I'm going to read from your bio to familiarize our audience with you and your work, and then we'll, we'll jump in. How does that sound? Sounds great. Okay. Matthew Hahn is a member of the Boundless Freedom Project Sangha and a program facilitator for Mindful Prisons, a mindful community meeting behind the walls of San Quentin State Prison. A co-founder of the Recovery Dharma Program, he teaches mostly to members of the system-impacted and recovery communities. Practicing meditation since facing a life-in-prison sentence himself in 2005, Matthew sat with his first sangha as a prisoner in Folsom State Prison. Since coming home in 2012, he has practiced principally within the insight tradition, but has also studied in Burma within the Mahasi U Pandita lineages. Matthew has been personally mentored by lay teachers within the insight tradition and was empowered with lay ordination by Venerable Panavati and the late Venerable Panadipa. Again, Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I think it would make sense to start here. Will you please give us a little sketch about the circumstances that that brought you into your long-term sentence there in California State Prison System? Yeah, I'll try to do the short version so it doesn't sound like a true crime podcast. Um, uh, I was a teenager that had a number of drug problems. I partied like most kids do in high school and eventually started using methamphetamine. And this eventually led me to drop out of high school. I started stealing as a way of fueling my addiction. Um, Stealing actually became an addiction unto itself. And I found myself getting a prison term uh, at the age of 18. I paroled in 2001 at the age of 21. And I did pretty good for a couple of years. I was going to college and whatnot. But a very close friend of mine commits suicide, and I was unable to cope. This isn't blaming him for the suicide. It was just uh, my first exposure to to death. And I relapsed on meth a number of months later and went back to doing what I knew how to do best, though clearly not well. Um, Started stealing again, and I caught another prison term in uh, early of 2005. It just so happened that because all of my prior theft charges were so numerous, I was facing a third strike in California. And so my 16 felony charges had me facing upwards of 400 years to life. And it was around that time that um, I figured something wasn't working. And uh, so I I guess I did two things during that period of time. One was uh, I recalled a college class I'd taken uh, a number of years earlier in which I'd first heard kind of the basic principles of Buddhism. And and when I'd taken that college class, I thought the Dharma sounded, you know, true. It made sense to me. But I also decided at that time that I wasn't suffering enough to have to do anything about it. Uh, And I decided there early on during my time in the county jail that I was now suffering enough to 
try to do something about it. And I also started to work a program of recovery. And obviously, I didn't get a life sentence. Uh, I was sentenced instead to 14 years, four months. I paroled seven years after beginning my recovery process and uh, my path in the Dharma. And that was in 2012. And here we are a decade later after having come home. That's the nutshell version. Okay, thank you, Matthew. That's, um, that's something else in that three strikes law in California, I know is, uh, can be really, really devastating. So I'm glad it ended up being as short as it was or the duration that it was and not longer. So you have been in county jails, you've been in state prisons, and I think for our audience, um, if, uh, if I'm thinking about the audience who are people that are currently bringing programming into incarcerated environments, uh, they're volunteering or they're being contracted to come in and do programming, I would say the vast majority of them uh, have, have not done time inside and they're venturing into an environment that's, that's alien. and you know, they have big hearts and they want to do well and they want to have as much positive impact as they can. So for people who are doing that work and aspiring to do that work, um, I just think this is such a, a rich opportunity to hear from somebody like yourself who has been on the receiving end. I'm going to ask you if you could talk about some of your interactions that you had. Maybe you had some interactions that were one-offs. Maybe you had interactions that were a, a longer. Maybe you have been in programming that went over a period of time. But if you'd be willing to just talk about some of the interactions you've had with folks coming in from the outside who, who are not uh, previously incarcerated. Yeah, so I participate in a lot of program. Um, where I, I participated in a lot of program that was available to me um, during the time that it was available. And that was mostly when I was at Folsom State Prison. Um, and then again, when I was at Jamestown, which is a Sierra Conservation Center. And that mostly consisted of 12-step. So those were what we think of as H&I, hospitals and institutions, volunteers. Um, I also participated in a Buddhist Sangha and participated in... Um, a couple of like one-off groups, like book study groups that would run for like six weeks or eight weeks with different volunteers. And I participated in other religious programs that were meditation-based. So they weren't necessarily Buddhist, but because they meditated, I went. And I would say that for the most part, uh, I wasn't able to establish long-term relationships with, with most of the volunteers. A couple I did. Um, but there were boundaries. And as I'm sure volunteers know, there are rules regarding over-familiarity, um, having contact with participants, prisoners, incarcerated people outside of the programming. So like no collect calls, no letters, no visiting and whatnot. And so I, I always sensed in my interactions um, that boundary, that boundary was there. But I also sensed a great deal of love and care. Um, we all on the yard knew that these people didn't have to be there. You know, we knew that they were coming there. Um, if it was 12 step out of, out of service, out of 12 step work, we knew if they were coming there for a Buddhist Sangha, um, 
to hold space for us to to teach us where we could uh, where we needed to learn how to meditate and learn about the Dharma. Um, and so I'd say like the, the, the relationships I had with volunteers were loving, but with a little bit of distance. Um, you know, I think, uh, if, if, if I'm thinking of like, you know, encounter specific encounters, if I'm thinking of specific qualities, uh, of the volunteers that, that stand out the most to me in terms of the ones I remember, um, fondly, I think of them as being kind and gentle, um, non-judgmental, never pressing me or us about crimes that we'd committed or how long we were in there for, um, patient with us, you know, we come from so many different educational backgrounds, you know, some folks need more explaining or less explaining and, um, always patient and kind in that manner. I, I did have a, a, a close relationship with one particular man. Um, and, uh, I'm still in contact with him to this day. And I consider that man a mentor to me. And, uh, you know, I hope that maybe one day I can mentor other people in the same way he has. Thank you. I, that, that feels like, like, um, like a really sort of good kind of general sense, you know, you've had years of encounters. So can you tell us about like, the first time you met somebody, what, what might've been a little something that, that you just remember? Well, when I think of meeting that man in particular, mm -hmm. I think of him shaking my hand. I think of him looking me in the eyes. And then subsequent encounters, not just with him, but with the folks inside, I think of them calling me and everyone around me by our first name. Uh, we're, we're accustomed to being called by our number. We're accustomed to be, sorry, I get a little emotional thinking about it. I, we're, we're accustomed to being called by either our last name, our number, or just inmate if they didn't know either one. And so to have somebody uh, meet us as people um, with interest in what, was, what we were expressing and what our needs were is, is powerful. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that maybe the relationship I established with that man was made the moment he shook my hand that day because I knew I could trust him. I knew he cared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, in, in some ways, you know, outside that seems like such a simple gesture and often cannot hold much consequence at all. But um, yeah. So something of what I heard was a way of just sharing a, a simple human moment. Uh, and, and, and it sounds like you felt like you were seen as a human being. Yes. Uh, sometimes I think the role of the volunteer when they come in is to provide a safe place for people who may not know safety otherwise. Um, it's to provide a uh, a place for out of the 24 hours of the, of the day, maybe an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and a half, we're allowed to um, just be human, just be men amongst other men. Um, not so much to teach all the time. Uh, as we know, mindfulness and meditation can be um, disarming. 
uh, especially if you know you're living in a penitentiary and you're asked to come in and say close your eyes or if willing be invited to close one's eyes mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting you may not know this but uh you know the political rules uh on the higher level prisons we're not allowed to take our shoes off outside of our cell that's not the department of corrections telling us that that's kind of the we'll just call it the, the the politics, right? We're, we're supposed to be ready to go when we step outside our cell, just to give you a, a sense of the, the, the lack of safety we generally have when we leave our cell. But when we would go to, in this case, Greystone Chapel in Folsom and would go to the, the Buddhist Sangha, um, go to the Centering Prayer Group, which is another group that I attended where, there, where meditation happened, we took our shoes off when we got into the chapel and it was the only place in the entire penitentiary, uh, outside my cell, and a shower, of course, that I took my shoes off. And it may sound like something simple or mundane to folks outside, but uh, taking the shoes off in the in prison is a uh, is a pretty remarkable event. And so sometimes I think that the role of the volunteers is yes to help us feel human, but to help us feel safe enough that we might be able to take our shoes off in a prison. Um, and we did that there. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, yeah, that's 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 really interesting. Uh, as I had mentioned to you before we started, I, I spend some time volunteering in Men Central Jail, LA County Sheriff's Jail System. It's the largest jail system in the country, and um, a large jail, fifty six hundred beds. And so I've worked with groups of men who. Uh, at times, really settle, get really quiet, like large groups, 20, 25, get really quiet. Um, and I find it very powerful. But you know what I don't know is you know, what happens after I leave or what happens after they leave the room and they're transported back to their housing unit? Well, unfortunately, uh, we have to put our shoes back on. Um, it, it, it's that's the sad part of living in some of these places. Is like uh, volunteers may see camaraderie when they come in. They may see different races, different walks of life, sitting in. A circle or or whatever the, the the setup may be in that room, but sitting in sangha, sitting in community, um, and the men in that room genuinely want that camaraderie, and I think most people in that room would want the entire prison to be that way. But the second we leave, um, uh, unfortunately, that we we leave those rooms, we end up having to put our shoes back on. I think of a story myself of uh, a black man that I was friends with in program, and. We would, there was a hallway, we would go to a meeting in a classroom inside education. And then there was a hallway that would go past all the classrooms. And then at the end of that hallway was a door that would lead back to the yard. And we would walk side by side, chatting at the end of our our group until we got to that door. And then we separated when we stepped out in the yard. Uh, This isn't to say that uh, we didn't recognize or nod or wink or say hello or good morning to one another, but things changed once we left. And this is kind of what I'm pointing at in terms of uh, 
these spaces we are called to create if we're volunteering for groups like this are are reprieves from prison. Mm-hmm. They're refuges, refuges in the, in the truest sense, um, places where it's not just uh, not just being met as humans from the volunteers, but perhaps volunteers treating people human enough such that everybody can also treat each other that way. I, if you want me, if you like hearing stories like this. Uh, it was one of the more beautiful things at the end of one of the, the contemplative fellowship, the centering prayer meditation group I used to go to. That community was so close. Those men were so loving that we would do, uh, there would be like a, a group, uh, a group member, not volunteer led discussion that night. And then a group member would lead or guide a meditation. And then when the whole group was done after a kind of discussion afterwards and whatnot, People would go to the back of the chapel and they'd give each other back rubs. They'd like crack each other's back. There was this weird moment because the other thing we are starved of, starved of in prison is touch. We don't touch each other very often. It's something if you don't have visits, you don't get much of at all. And so to see that like 15 minutes or so where we'd ritualistically go to the back of the room and crack each other's backs and give each other neck rubs and whatnot was also beautiful. But again, that's the byproduct of creating that safe space. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's that comes down to the volunteers that comes down to them creating that safe space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So this is really getting me thinking. Um, so to create that safe space, what what uh, to create that safe space? We've talked about non-judgment coming in, being open to people's humanity and. Uh, what other qualities do you see? I mean, how does how is someone able to actually come in and do that? It's coming in, so we're, let's say somebody's coming into a kind of an alien environment. There may be some uh, fear or anxiousness or lack of confidence. Or as as a so as a practitioner, like I'm kind of asking you as a practitioner, what would we want to cultivate internally to be able to create those spaces? Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind is, is of course, metta and karuna, you know, loving kindness and compassion. But, but I have a feeling that uh, folks aren't going to be going into a penitentiary to offer services like this if, if they don't already have a pretty good supply of that, right? Um, you know, this is a, a word that gets thrown around in prison a lot. You've probably heard respect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so the word that's coming to mind is, is respect, cultivation of respect. But I'm thinking of it in terms of uh, kind of like a like a mixture of beginner's mind and humility. Like the the fact that a uh, a volunteer may come in with ideas of saving people, right, or teaching people, um, and then realize very quickly that particularly those in a new environment, that the volunteer is the student here. The volunteer has much to learn from the people around them. Um, There are men in prison who have learned to thrive amidst incomprehensible suffering. And uh, I think every Buddhist practitioner uh, has much to learn from from those sorts of experiences. And so that's where the humility comes in. The, the, this idea, and this was demonstrated by volunteers, and that's why I'm bringing it up, this, this idea that there is a ton 
of wisdom in that room and that you aren't the sole holder of that wisdom there. We're not, we're not just like, we don't have a satchel of wisdom that we as the volunteer bring in, right? There's a ton of it around. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think of that, that, that man I was talking about, the mentor of mine. And I think about him creating that, that space where again, he didn't come in to teach. He came in to hold the space and allow other people to present topics for the night. And then other people would lead the meditation. And I remember when I first started going to those groups, that that simple fact allowed me to not just see him as a mentor, but started to see the other, the men around me as potential mentors, as spiritual giants, as some of them were. And so I suppose what made the best spaces, the safest spaces, the most humane spaces were the ones where we were respected and valued for the wisdom and knowledge and, and history that we had and that we brought uh, to the space ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, in that sense, then I guess it's the responsibility of the volunteer to, uh, to build community. It's not a classroom. It's not a lecture hall. Um, it's not even like an AA meeting, like where, you know, you just have a speaker sharing the experience, strength and hope. And then people might share about it. It was, it was, uh, uh, an understanding that we're all humans here and that humility and that beginner's mind, I think are, are what make the best volunteers in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. That's, that's wonderful. And I'm going to ask you to now expand a little bit more because, uh, we've heard throughout some of our interviews on the summit, uh, from, from some chaplains, mm -hmm. um, the the depth of humility that is drawn out uh, by people who spend time inside. Uh, humility is just like a bedrock. Um, can you talk a little bit about cultural humility? Because I, you know, it's just going to be human nature that, as you say, people are you know they have big hearts. They they have their ideas. They have their ideals. They have their own moral compass. They're they're going to want. They're trying to provoke change of some kind, transformation. And there may be agendas. You know, there may be. Uh, however, that works. Um, but we always come with our own limited set of views, right? So, um, so humility, I think, as a foundation, really lands. Really makes a lot of sense. And as people come in and are encountering folks from so many different cultures, can you talk a little bit about cultural humility and, and trying to understand or, or beginner's mind and cultural humility? Whatever that sparks for you, Matthew. Well, chances are, at the very least, in the moment when the, the volunteering has happened, the volunteer is probably in a more privileged position than the people inside. Right. And right. so, I mean, of, of course, the first um, the first thing we have to do is check our privilege. Right. Like what uh, what experiences do I have that perhaps they won't be able to relate to? And then we should we should probably think about that before sharing in certain ways. Uh, but the chances are also that uh, just the nature of folks going in probably means that for the most part, the life history is probably more privileged than the people inside. And so that's something that I think needs to be understood. There are ways, I think, to help with this, of course. And this is, uh, this is the responsibility of us going inside to educate ourselves on 
mass incarceration, on systemic racism, on um, uh, you know, childhood traumas and the things that lead people to end up in prison, drug addiction and whatnot. This doesn't mean we have to become experts, but it would behoove us to become a little bit more sensitive to those issues um, and think about the complex causes and conditions that, that bring people uh, to the penitentiary in the first place. Um, I'm not sure if that's quite what you're, what you're pointing at, but to me, again, it points back to that beginner's mind, this idea that, uh, uh, like, as you said, folks going in, it's an alien world. You know, some people like hearing me tell prison stories because it's like I've been to Mars or something, you know, it's an alien world. And, uh, I suppose we have to then understand that since it's an alien world, we're the alien. When we go in, the folks inside are the ones that know something about it. Um, and so, yeah, like, uh, despite the fact that I've been to prison and despite the fact that I, I've what spent what, nine years of my life there, um, still grew up as a relatively privileged, uh, heterosexual white man. That's, I, I can't, I can't change that cultural upbringing. And so there are certain, certain things that I can only make, um, attempts to understand and have compassion for, but can't deeply under, understand myself. Uh, particularly when it comes to race um, and certain socioeconomic backgrounds. And so therefore, I have to be humble. I have to bring awareness that um, anything that comes out of my mouth, any judgment, any advice I give may be coming from a place of that privilege, even with the background I have. And so I suppose that idea, that culture of humility, um, cultural humility uh, comes into play as a volunteer as well. But with that said, I think that points towards the need for more people who've been the places I've been to become volunteers. Um, that despite the fact that I have my own biases and privileges, um, I think I am well-equipped um, or better equipped to, to understand a little bit more of what's going on out there, what's going on in the prison. Uh, and so perhaps that's why I feel called to do this work. Mm -hmm. Have you seen it that volunteers ask, like bring this cultural humility, curiosity, interest, and are willing to say, I, I don't know how you grew up, or uh, what will you tell me? Like opening, opening lines of communication in that way. I'm trying to think of the context. Now, I know there are programs where conversations like this could happen, but I know that for the most part, the, um, the programs I participated in, there wouldn't have been much opportunity for a facilitator to say, tell me about your life story. Tell me about the background. Mm -hmm. um, but I can envision those sort of scenarios. And yes, I think uh, this humility begins with questions. And, uh, you know, it, when myself and the facilitators with Mindful Prisons, you know, we're kind of putting together the introductory day um, at San Quentin, um, we kind of came to the conclusion that we wanted to lead it like a discussion and that we understood that there was probably a significant amount of wisdom already in the room. So why not let the participants um, tell us what mindfulness is about? Right. This idea of like, let's ask them questions. And then if we need to steer it, 
we can. And I think uh, this idea of asking questions rather than talking at is an important, important element of carrying uh, programming into prisons. Right. Would you be willing to give us some of your reflections of of missteps, you know, some pitfalls? Have you seen situations where programmers or volunteer people have like it didn't work, didn't didn't go so good. That wasn't a good day or that wasn't that wasn't the right thing to say. What is it? What can we look out for? How can we how can we be better? What can we avoid? Um. Well, there were some programs that started and fizzled out. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody uh, wanted to start their own book study group. And it, I, I imagine their well-intentioned life on the outside, like, let's start a book study group in the prison. Let's get permission. Let's do it. I found space. Let's go into the prison and do it. And then they realized that they're the only volunteer for that one group that meets weekly. And there's burnout or there's vacations or there's illness. And what ends up happening is they fizzle out or they become sporadic. And I think volunteers need to be sensitive to the fact that uh, people in prison have been let down a lot in their lives. Um, people who go to prison are often let down further and or abandoned by family members. And if you're on a yard where there's a lot of lifers, they probably went through a pretty significant abandonment early on in their prison terms. And so there's not, uh, I think we have to have sensitivity towards a sort of disappointment and letdown. So I guess the reverse of that is like only commit to what you can do, only commit to what you have the emotional and actual temporal like time for. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess this means that, uh, you know, the most well functioning groups I was a part of had lots of volunteers that they wrote that, you know, they rotated in and out. It wasn't one person bringing in a group every week. Those never tended to last. It was where there was five or six or seven or eight people sharing the responsibility. Many of them might be there every week, but they didn't have to be because there were plenty of other people um, helping out. So I suppose the, uh, it, the, the, the pitfall, one pitfall is um, losing the confidence of the participants because you have taken a bit enough more than you can chew. Uh, you know, I remember one one of your questions in the sheet was kind of like also just like the idea of like taking commitments, you know, and I think part of like not biting off more than you can chew might also be not taking commitments at all if they involve going behind the walls in the first place. Perhaps it's easier to write letters. Perhaps it's easier to send books and whatnot. Perhaps it's easier to support people who do those sort of things uh, because it is better to have a consistent fewer programs, but that are consistent and run by people who are there regularly than it is to have sporadic and spotty programs. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the one thing that I've seen before, um, I suppose this kind of falls in the realm of educating oneself um, about, you know, not just mass incarceration, but the, the political and racial structure of the institution you may be going to. Um, you know, depending on whether it's a high security or a low security prison, there's going to be racial politics. Uh, I know in a perfect world, that's not the case. But as I kind of described earlier, it is at higher security level prisons. And so finding out what those uh, those politics are generally so as to not uh, 
make mistakes and put people in uncomfortable or awkward positions in the group. I remember uh, this was actually in a drug program during my first prison term. Uh, the programming staff got permission to bring in food, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for like a, like a catered event or whatever. And they made the mistake of having the prisoner or the incarcerated people serve the food themselves, which meant that different races of people were serving the food to other races on their plates. And so there was a, an awkward moment when half the people in the program couldn't eat the food because it had been served by someone that they weren't supposed to receive food from. And so again, in a perfect world, this isn't something we have to worry about, but these are the types of things we have to think about is that this is the environment that they're in. And if we're trying to create that safe space, we're talking about, we can't have mishaps like that because those sort of uncomfortable circumstances might be very difficult to come back from, or it will take some time. Mm -hmm. uh, and back to the, the, the idea of like understanding one's privilege. Uh, there have been awkward moments when people were offering advice and thinking of this in a particular 12 step meeting I went to once where a volunteer was actually offering advice to folks in the room. And it was very clear she was coming from a place of, uh, of more wealth than most of the people in the room could imagine. And it kind of created in that circumstance, it was an awkward silence. Um, but it also meant that she lost a significant amount of respect from people going forward when she would bring meetings in. So those are the types of things um, that came up. I never saw like the serious ones. I've heard about serious problems where overfamiliarity actually led to um, people getting into trouble. I think what folks need to understand, and this happened to a man that I write who is currently in prison. He, uh, not the wisest decision, got very close with a volunteer and that volunteer uh, sent some legal paperwork out or something on his behalf. That volunteer doesn't get in trouble for doing that. But once the prison staff found out, he had to pack up all his stuff. They put him on a prison bus. They shipped him out to a different prison that didn't have any of the same programs that he had. And so when we do things that violate these overfamiliarity rules, even if they're well-intentioned, even if they come from a place of compassion, we're not going to prison or jail over the thing, but they will ruin the person's life over it. And so... I wasn't present for that mishap. I just know what happened because it's a man that, that I write. Um, and so those are things to keep in account, take into account as well. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think it's, yeah. I mean, I have a couple, of, a couple of instances where people who I know who are very experienced uh, working and volunteering behind the walls um, have, you know, they've crossed some lines that could get them in trouble could get the people they believe they're trying to help in trouble and their family members in trouble. So, um, yeah, so thank you for, in a way that I think that helps build confidence to know what your boundaries are and be clear about them. And, uh, you know, I think trust builds from that, right? We know what our, what the bounds of our relationships are and we'll have a relationship within those boundaries. Um, so you've mentioned something that we hadn't really talked about this before, but when you, uh, when you talked about the politics within within the population that's incarcerated uh, in the jail that I work in, there are there are a lot of politics, and I have heard about sort of the general idea of politics. And in some ways, as a volunteer, it's kind of like 
I don't want, I feel like I don't want to know too much. You know, like I'm working really hard to try to figure out what's going on with the administration, what's going on with with the ability to move or not move people. You know, I don't want to like step over the line in terms of that whole administrative structure and security structure, because there's a lot of do's and don'ts around that, you know, and. um, But every now and then people will kind of give me a little insight into some of the internal politics and my eyes just kind of bug open. It's like, there is just this whole world going on here that I'm not seeing, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not there when people go to bed at night and get up in the morning and I, you know, maybe I'm there for four hours or eight hours. So, you know, it feels like I'm seeing something, but. So how accurate is that? I mean, is there is there a whole, and there must be, people live there, right? There's like a whole world going on. Absolutely. There absolutely is. Yeah. And, um, and again, that points back to why, the safe spaces that volunteers create are so important, but there absolutely is a whole world going on. And there are certain things that um, I suppose, you know, for fear that it could make it back out to that world from the safe space that you just know there's certain lines you don't want to cross, you know? And, um, and I suppose there's a fine line, you know, like volunteers aren't going to be asked to do very many things. And I, I can't imagine too many things other than like that food incident I mentioned that happened in in prison the first time. There's not too many things um, that would get the guys in trouble. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, asking or, or expecting certainly um, certain levels of vulnerability or sharing uh, within a group. Um, about particular things could get guys in trouble back in the yard. I'm just thinking about stuff that you wouldn't want to necessarily do publicly in a, in a, in a program, you know, I'm thinking about the ways that people would share. I remember I shared once, just for example, I shared once at a 12 step meeting and someone had to come check me afterwards. I shared once because I was so frustrated that my Sally was shooting up Benadryl and I was in recovery and he was, and like I was accustomed to my exposure to 12 step in the past. It's like what's said here stays here. But then someone had to come up to me like, yes, but we're in prison. So you can't say that out loud in a meeting here. Um, and that's just an example of like there's certain degrees of honesty that we can't expect um, and shouldn't push people for mm-hmm. uh, in these rooms. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a there's a very scary world happening outside uh, of our program and most people are very very respectful and so if i I don't want to scare people away from volunteering those rooms are are safe spaces they absolutely are in the sense that people don't bring the politics in there it's kind of reminds me of uh, the politics around the visiting area like politics aren't allowed to happen in the visiting area it's like a unwritten but fully understood rule regarding the visiting area where family comes in. Politics must stay outside of the visiting area. Politics will stay outside of the room um, so long as we don't ask them to violate some of the major rules. And we don't need to go over what those major rules are now. This isn't quite the space. But um, the the gang activity and the racial segregation and all the things that you could think of as happening maybe in the Jim Crow, Jim Crow South are the types of things that happen um, in California prisons. Um, 
and I should be clear, we're talking about California prisons here, which ironically is the most racialized um, prison system in the United States. Um, I have read conversations regularly with people from prisons throughout the South, and they are not as racially segregated segregated as they are in California. And don't ask me why that's the case, but it's the case and it's the reality we have to contend with. Well, that's very much reflected in LA County jails as well, very much so. Um, so there was a there was a group that I was that I was facilitating and uh, was strongly considering it. And at one point, uh, I had a, a sort of a co-facilitator with me. We put men into diets, something that I've done in many different types of settings outside settings that are, um, you know, retreat settings or programs that people committed to. These are. These are where guys who volunteered for the hour or the two hours. Some of them had come weeks or months in a row, and some were maybe new for the first time. But we actually did put people in diets. And I, I'm still not comfortable with that. I'm still uh, – it, it all seemed to go fine. It all seemed to go great. And our prompts for the discussion within the diet seemed quite harmless and was quite self-reflective. You know. Kind of just in terms of the workings of the mind. Um, thoughts, thoughts on putting people you don't know into diets? Depends on the types of questions you're asking. You know, um, what were the types of questions you were asking? Um, we, you know, we asked people to re recount um, a story that where something turned out different than you thought it was going to turn out. You know, and and with the caveat that you know, if there is a conflict involved, it would be a very minor conflict and nothing from childhood, but just you had an expectation, generally an expectation that something was not going to work out, and then one way or another, it kind of did work out. Yeah, I think I think if you model questions like that uh, in a way that the person can be as vulnerable as they so choose rather than feeling pigeonholed into a certain type of vulnerability that could put them in a dangerous or at the very, very least just uncomfortable position, you know, like, uh, uh, most people in prison have had adverse childhood experiences. They have traumas and things like that. And so uh, when we, when we design programming with questions like you're talking about, I think we have to make sure that we design them open-ended enough that they can pick what part of the vulnerability spectrum that mm -hmm. best fits uh, the safety of the environment, or at least the perceived safety of the environment they're in. In mm -hmm. uh, that question sounds like it would have been all right, you know, like not meeting expectations and whatnot. It reminds me of the interviews I did for getting into the electricians union, very open-ended <laughs> and they work. Yeah. Right. Um, so would, we're gonna we're gonna start to to wrap it up, Matthew. I think this has been really uh, for me has been really rich, and I think you've provided us a, an eye uh, to the inside that we very rarely are gonna are gonna get. But now you're starting to to move into to you've done some work to be able to get into California State Prison to to start teaching, guiding, facilitating, working with programming. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a strange, awesome, full circle sort of thing that happened. I uh, uh, 
I was relatively close with one of the facilitators who led the the Buddhist Sangha at Folsom State Prison, but then lost touch with her as I moved on to different prisons. Um, and earlier this year, as I was recovering from a heart surgery, I had a lot of time to think. And I, I, I decided that like the nine years I'd done waiting, thinking I would eventually be ready to start going into jails or prisons, and, uh, it was time to stop pretending and just go and start doing it again. And so uh, someone found me on Twitter that knows I'm both involved in criminal justice and Buddhism, asking for help for her son, uh, who is in a California state prison, that he wanted to find uh, meditation resources and people to get in touch with if you wanted to practice the Dharma. And so I did some finger walking and I found something online called the Boundless Freedom Project. And as I was like looking into it and researching it to make sure it was legit before I passed on that information to this mother, uh, I stumbled upon its history and I read the history and lo and behold, um, it had a, had a prior name and the founder of that organization was the woman who had been bringing in that Folsom prison Buddhist Sangha. Uh, so not only did I recommend them, I started attending their weekly uh, Zoom Sangha, which is for people who have been part of the Sangha uh, in prison and then come home. And it's also for volunteers and anybody else who really wants to attend. So I started going to this Boundless Freedom Project Sangha uh, and realized that I had come home in some way. Uh, imagine my joy when I finally saw Diane, that's the woman who had founded the program, was the facilitator. When I saw her in the Zoom room with me, it was like, Diane, I'm here, the guy that was in your group, you know, in prison, you know, 16 years ago, 15 years ago. Anyhow, yes, I've joined the Brownness Freedom Project now. Uh, we have a grant with the, um, believe it or not, from the California Department of Corrections to run a three-year uh, mindfulness program. It's called Mindful Prisons. It looks like it's going to be three cycles. Um, basically a weekend workshop once a month, uh, for nine months and then over and over again, I, I applied to get into San Quentin. Uh, they denied me because of my criminal record. I tried again. And sometimes I think they just try to test us. They want to make sure us formerly incarcerated people actually want to do what we're asking to do because I applied again a week or two later and then they let me in. So we, uh, just got ready to start doing this. I did a tour of San Quentin, which is interesting because I once lived there. Um, so I went in there last month for the first time since leaving that prison myself when I was 20 years old. Uh, and we were supposed to start uh, this last Saturday, but as I told you, uh, we got halfway to the place and uh, there was a lockdown. That's the other thing that we have to take into account. There will be lockdowns and we will be disappointed until we can't go places and we can't get too fearful of it when they tell us it's because they found a weapon in the dorm, which is what happened on Saturday. Um, so yes, I've, I guess I've fallen back into, uh, I, I mean, I've fallen into teaching in, in, in prisons and with the same organization that brought me the Dharma and meditation in the first place. And so it's, it's kind of a beautiful full circle thing. Yeah. Wow. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I wish you all the best with that. Thank you. So you toured through San Quentin. They took you on the volunteers tour through San Quentin to become right. like familiar. I didn't, like the special, I didn't get the special fancy one where they, they take us into all the cell blocks and tell you what guy lived in that one. I didn't, I didn't get that special one. Um, I think a couple of the um, cell blocks were actually locked down for COVID anyhow. 
um, when I was there. Uh, no, just a, a tour through the places we're allowed to be and how to get where we need to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was going to be a, an unnerving experience, but it wasn't. It was a, uh, I had an experience where I went into the, a local county jail a couple of years ago, and I was a little fearful and felt some, you know, stuff come up as to be expected, you know, going back into a, a carceral setting again for the first time at that time since paroling. But what I found, uh, and I don't know if this is an indication of some degree of institutionalization, <laughs> I'd say that tongue in cheek, but after 15 or 20 minutes in there, I felt home. Like I felt comfortable. I felt like I know this place. I know these people. Um, these are my people. And uh, again, I think that's um, that's something that feels very unique. It, there's a half of our project, half of the people bringing mindful prisons to San Quentin are formerly incarcerated. In fact, I, of the members who are facilitating, spent the least amount of time in prison. And I spent nine years in prison. Uh, one of our facilitators is, um, well, the other three facilitators, all former lifers who are released in the last number of years. And uh, so they spent a significant amount of time in prison. And uh, I know that we're well equipped to, to carry mindfulness in a way probably um, most groups aren't. And I'm pretty excited mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it sounds like you'll very much be able to, uh, I mean, you tell me, but in terms of, as you have alluded to many times in this conversation, the, the trauma that, that made service, the trauma that's obviously there historically, and the trauma that is generated from being in those environments, uh, um, sounds like yourself and these folks may be very well equipped to work with both their own and those who are were there in the groups. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it's, but the, there will be a learning curve, I'm sure, though, because uh, I'm on a different side of the relationship now, you know, and so I, I need to bring in my own version of beginner's mind, despite the fact that the, the environment I understand um, I need to learn how to navigate what it means to not get over familiar, right? Like to, to learn how to have uh, the other type of boundary. And so I imagine there's going to be a, a learning curve for me, but uh, you know, like I just want to focus on, you know, basically creating the same spaces that were created for me. I want to focus on finding ways of allowing the, the men in those rooms to tap their inherent wisdom to, to tap. Um, I mean, Again, they've lived through a significant amount of suffering, and there will always be um, something in that room that I have to learn. And so, like, my hope is to to create those safe spaces and build communities such that they can teach and support each other in the same way um, that the the communities I was a member of in Folsom State Prison did. Uh, just again, just as a way of holding space and guiding where 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 I see fit. Matthew, would you be willing to to guide us in a in a brief practice the way you may provide for these? What's what's brief? <laughs> Three minutes, five minutes, pretty brief. Sure. So take a seated posture. Find a position that is 
sustainable, comfortable, but not too comfortable, alert, but not too alert. And bring attention to the places where the body touches the earth. Perhaps the feet on the floor. The way the back rests against a cushion or a chair. Bring attention to the way that the clothing rests on shoulders, on legs. The sensation of air on the skin. Bring awareness to the general sensation of the seated posture, the body as a whole, just sitting, just breathing. Thoughts may arise, fantasies may happen, worries about the future. And this is normal. We non judgmentally let those thoughts go and kindly return the attention to the body in the seated posture. What is it like to sit here now? What is it like to have this body?
And if your eyes have been closed, whenever you are ready, feel free to open them. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you so much. Thank you for being part of the Prison Mindfulness Summit. How can people find out more about, about your work, your writing, be able to be in touch? Yeah, I started writing a little bit or posting some of my talks at dirtyhandscleandharma.com. Um, but I think most importantly is looking up the work of the Boundless Freedom Project. Thank you. We'll be sure to post, uh, post those links up on the page uh, so people will be able to hop across. Thank you so much. Please be well, Matthew. Thank you for all of your great work. Thank you. We wish you well. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.